I mean, I think Cicely Bowen and their writing is just such a vibe. Voices, voices, Hello, podcast listeners. My name is still Megan Black, and I'm welcoming you back to Voices Podcast, a collaborative project from Art Poetry Magazine and Poetry and Voice that brings together poets and the students who chose their poems to recite for Poetry and Voice's annual contest. This podcast was once again recorded remotely, and I would like to start by acknowledging the different Indigenous land that participants were on while we had our conversation. As well as being within the historical Northwest Métis homeland, Calgary is situated in the Treaty 7 region of southern Alberta on the traditional lands of the Blackfoot Confederacy, including the Siksika, the Kainai, and Pikani Nations, the Stony Nakoda First Nations, and the Sutina First Nation. Vancouver is located on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. Saint-Lambert in Quebec is located on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded land of the Ganagahaga Nation, and finally, Ottawa, where Arc Poetry Magazine is located, is built on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe people. Now let's meet our guests. Hello, my name is Cicely Bell Blaine. My pronouns are they, them, and I'm the CEO of a anti-racism consulting company called Bacow Consulting, and I'm also the author of Burning Sugar. Burning Sugar is Cicely Bell Blaine's debut collection of poetry. Hi, my name is Aaron Saul Negra. I use he, him pronouns, and I go to All Saints High School. Aaron Saul is one of two student contestants who join us for today's episode. Mia is the second. Hi, my name is Mia. I go by she and her, and I go to Champlain college in Quebec. Thanks for joining us, Mia. You didn't recite a poem by Cicely Bell Blaine for the contest, but you are a fan of Dear Diaspora Child and of Aaron Saul's recitation too. Is that right? Yeah. The first time that I knew about the poem was when I watched Aaron Saul's recitation. I really liked the way that he interpreted it and I liked the message too because I think that a lot of people can relate to this poem. And just to know that like other people feel the same way, it's really reassuring. It's a great poem. Actually, let's listen to to Aaron Saul's recitation of Dear Diaspora Child. Dear Diaspora Child by Cicely Bell Blaine. It's okay if you only learned about your culture from Google. It's okay if you only read your language at the public library. It's okay if you need books to know your ancestral recipes. It's okay if you've never even set foot on the soil of your people. It's okay if your hips don't sway to those rhythms. It's okay if the food is too bitter for your tongue. It's okay if English is the only language that flows freely from your mouth. It's okay if your wardrobe is just jeans and tees. It's okay if you only know Shakespeare. It's okay if spice brings you fear instead of joy. It's okay if you understand but can't reply. It's okay if you dread the disappointed stares of aunties. It's okay if small words like salam alaikum fall from your tongue like broken bones. It's okay if you spend your whole life shunning it all, only to now want it back. You are no less worthy. It is no less home. Love always, CB. That was great, Aaron Saul. Thank you so much. Yeah, I loved it. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. Thank you for choosing my poem. Like, it was so cool to see it performed that way. I don't love performing my poetry, but I did when I was writing it. I was like, this is kind of a good one if it's going to be performed. So yeah, when I saw that you performed it, I was like, oh, I'm so glad it worked out. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Aaron Saul, can you tell us a little bit about how you picked this poem and how you decided in what way you would perform it? Yeah, for choosing a poem to recite for Poetry and Voice, this was one of the ones that was so simple yet so impactful. And I think that those are the kinds of 
the poems that I, people can really like resonate to. All the teachers in the English department really encouraged me to find something that was relatable to me and just really spoke to me. And when I found this poem, I like I knew I had a feeling in my stomach that I could just use some of myself and some of my personal experiences into this poem and just really make these words on paper just come to life. Me personally, as a first generation Canadian, my family immigrated here from the Philippines in 2001. When I was born, I was born in 2006. I was just very much born in a very predominantly like white communities. And I guess I've kind of just like, ever since I can remember, I've just always been trying to find a balance in junior high, just very formative years for anybody. I just gave into like the Canadian culture and I was like all in and I was, I felt very Canadian, but I think in being so prideful of being Canadian, I also, I also kind of felt like I lost a little bit of my Filipino culture. And these lines, like, it's okay if you understand, but can't reply. It's okay if you understand, but can't reply. And it's okay if you dread the disappointed stares of aunties. It's okay if you dread the disappointed stares of aunties. These are all things that I've experienced before, whether it be on like a very small scale or a very big scale. I feel like I've experienced all of this. When I was annotating and an analyzing this poem, I really think that something I learned from theater, storybook theater, specific shout out, is that when you're performing a piece, you just really need to put yourself, like imagine yourself in a place, in a setting, so you could become more grounded in the work and just really like mean the words that you're saying. With the repetition, I feel like it was great repetition. It all starts with, it's okay, 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 if you spent your whole life as imagining that this is just something that a diaspora child was like saying to themselves in the mirror, just affirmations that before you go out into the world, they're like, just like looking in the mirror being like, it's okay, it's okay. These things happen. It's okay that like this happened. It's okay. And eventually in the line, it's okay if you understand but can't reply. It's okay if you understand but can't reply. There's really this shift in emotion. There's just really no more meaning to it's okay because when the poem just keeps on going, I just keep on getting like more insecure and things just finally start falling apart until I say, it's okay if you spend your whole life shunning it all, only to now want it back. It's okay if you spend your whole life shunning it all, only to now want it back. And now I'm in the phase of like now wanting it back, but also just realizing that there's no shame in wanting it back. And whether I'm 16 or when I'm 26, that I'm no less worthy of where I came from. You are no less worthy. Because I think that's just the whole overall theme of the poem. That's a great analysis, Aaron Saul. Thank you for sharing. Shall we move on to asking Cicely some of the questions I know you two have? Yeah, sure. Um, I can start. But first off, I just like to say, Cicely, that your writing is just so beautiful and just so impactful. Thanks so much. Um, I think that the work that I'm most proud of is work that I do in a space that I feel like really comfortable and supported and grounded in. So I wanted to ask what kind of spaces or environments do you find brings out the best in you creatively? Ooh, that's such a lovely question. I would say physically, I like to be in my home. I'm definitely a homebody. I like to be comfortable and I just redecorated my home office and made it all pink and hung up lots of nice artwork. Artists of color and queer artists whose visual art inspires my literary art, I suppose. And also a lot of my poems, especially in Burning Sugar, are written about different places and about different types of art as well. So those ones I tend to write in those physical spaces, which sometimes I'm just kind of like struck with inspiration and decide to scroll something down. Yeah, I like to kind of be constantly conscious, I guess, and constantly alert to when something could be of interest or something could spark, yeah, something to write about. And yeah, I would I would say emotionally or psychologically 
basically I'm very grateful to have really supportive friends and family and, and people in my community who are willing to give me feedback on my work and to give me affirmations and I guess give me pep talks if I'm feeling down or feeling unsure and that's really helpful as well. Yeah. Having community around you is so important, especially as an artist. Yeah, I mean, I've been doing theater, just like community theater in and around the city of Calgary for about four years now. And I truly believe that just having a base of like respect, our best work will shine through. But what about you, Mia? Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with that. Actually really into theater and acting and all. I really hope like this summer I'll be able to reach out to this sort of community near my home. Yeah. Talking about like the title, Dear Diaspora Child, what exactly do you mean by that? Yeah, I think the term diaspora child kind of is something that I heard growing up. Like not, I wouldn't say those exact words, but I think, you know, words like third culture kid, for example, or second generation immigrant child, these things where you kind of always are going to have something that comes before your identity and something that, you know, if you are part of the majority, if you're part of the racial majority, say, for example, you're, you know, a white Canadian citizen, you're usually not going to have anything come before your name. You're just going to be a person. Whereas people who are immigrants, people, people of color, trans and non-binary people usually are introduced or defined by something that comes before their name or before what they perceive to be their primary identity. And so in this case, I mean, I think lots of adults can resonate with it as well, but I think it was kind of speaking to young people and speaking to a lot of people's inner children as well. You know, sometimes you just wanted to be a child. You just wanted the innocence of childhood, but because of all of the weight of various experiences, whether that's like immigration or like learning a new language when you move somewhere else or the weight of carrying intergenerational trauma or like, yeah, things from the past or things that your parents passed down. Yeah, that specific piece about childhood and it's how many of us unfortunately don't get the opportunity to heal from our childhood experiences. And, you know, those of us who do are very lucky to do so if we have the resources. And so, yeah, and and because a lot of the rest of the book was about travel and place, this kind of element, really what you want most when you're a kid is to is to belong, right? Like that's what helps people to grow and that's what helps people to feel valued and important. And if we don't get that at the right time in our growth period, then that can have lifelong impact. So yeah, that's kind of what it meant to me. Yeah, you know, like um, I was going to say French, but... <laughs> Yeah. I was kind of curious, Cicely, uh, if you would like to share kind of like your past and where you come from and everything that's related to the poem itself. Yeah. So I grew up in Southeast London and lived there until I was 10. And then we moved to France for a year and then came back to London. And so I spent my teenage years in London and then moved to the Netherlands and then moved here to Canada. So we did a lot of moving around and that presented like... I think different ways for me to look at my identity, you know, to grow up in somewhere as diverse and multicultural as London is very different from when we moved to a small village in the south of France. So these moments provided a lot of reflection. And I think obviously at the time it wasn't fun, <laughs> but when I grew up, I realized yeah like what those moments meant I guess and what positives I can take from the kind of resilience you learn when you experience isolation or exclusion and then yeah when I when I moved to the Netherlands I went to a school called the United World College of Maastricht and it's part of a group of schools all over the world um, that are kind of connected by the idea of uniting students from different cultures for the goal of peace I suppose and it was such an amazing opportunity to meet so many different people 
people from so many different countries and speaking so many different languages. And, and that really opened my eyes and broadened my horizons. And yeah, just like exposed me to so many different types of people and different ways of being. If I hadn't have gone to that school, I probably wouldn't have ended up here in North America. So even though that was only for, for two years, it was a very pivotal moment. And then, yeah, and then I went to UBC for my undergrad. I studied European studies and Russian and graduated in 2016. And shortly after that started my business. And yeah, that's what I've been doing ever since. Um, a lot of my experiences and a lot of my passion and drive for what I do now, I can sort of trace back to my teenage years and that being a very pivotal awakening for me in terms of like experiencing racism, not necessarily for the first time, but maybe experiencing it more viscerally for the first time and experiencing it more on a structural or systemic level for the first time. I probably didn't have the language for it, but that's when I started to understand, you know, the difference between just calling someone a racial slur versus racism actually being a systemic and structural thing that is impacting large communities and is, you know, the reason why some communities have less money or less resources and some have more kind of thing. And that's what I started to understand around 14, 15. And then as I say, yeah, when I was 16, moving to international school and just the, the excitement and the different experiences of that time period in my life really drives a lot of my work because I'm trying to I'm trying to be there for that young me in a way that I did not feel my needs being met by teachers and by peers and 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 things like that. So yeah, in most of my book, there's lots of different letters to different people. Some of them are either people that I know, or they are people who are from history, or they are activists or people who've been victims of police brutality. So there was lots of letters in the book. And so then when it came to writing this piece directed towards, I guess, more of an unknown entity, more of just like a, a hypothetical person, it wasn't something I had considered doing at first. But then as I started to write it, I could sort of imagine lots of different people being on the receiving end of experiencing, you know, what it's like to grow up in the diaspora and, you know, maybe away from your culture, away from language and family and all of these things. And yeah, it was sort of partly to myself, but partly to so many of my family members and community members who've been disconnected in some way, you know, sometimes it's by choice, but sometimes it's by your parents' decisions, or sometimes it's by uh, force or, or necessity that you might end up far away from culture and tradition. So yeah, it was kind of a fun piece to write because it was, I guess, yeah, I guess more hypothetical or more kind of ambiguous as to who exactly it's for. And so many different people, regardless of your of your background, can relate in some ways. Knowing that I'm almost sort of writing to that version of myself. And when you're a teenager, you, you really do feel like life is tough and, and it feels like, you know, your body's changing, the world is changing, or you're noticing new things about the world, which you didn't know before. And that can be a very difficult and isolating time. And I think especially for young people of color or people who are questioning their gender and sexuality or people who come from poor backgrounds or immigrant backgrounds, those experiences are much more real and much more visceral. You know, I think a lot of our experiences as teenagers, you know, seem more dramatic than they are because of our hormones and because of the, the drama of being a teenager. But then, you know, for a lot of people, those things actually are a lot more serious than we give them credit for. And I think I particularly remember like times when I was trying to, you know, speak up about something or I was upset about something, but because I didn't have the language and because I was a teenager and was communicating maybe in a more emotional way than I would now, those things not being taken seriously. But now I look back and I'm like, wait, I was actually touching on things that were real. They weren't just imagined. They weren't just driven by emotions or hormones. They were genuine reflections or res responses to the world we live in. So yeah, in writing Dear Diaspora Child specifically, it was very much teenagers in mind. Well, it's great that we're having like 
like these kinds of conversations because while I was in junior high, I was just like, I am the only person going through this in the world. It's great that with these conversations and also through poetry that I get to feel like I'm not alone in this, that like other people have experienced this as well. Like Mia, virtual high five, virtual fist pump, virtual pat on the back. We're doing, yes. we're really doing our best out here. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I mean, my parents are both immigrants from different countries. My dad is from France. I live in Quebec, so it's easier. I do speak French, but my mom comes from Mexico. And it's just recently, like, we went on a trip to Mexico. And that's when I was like, I do have the opportunity to speak with my mom in Spanish. So might as well take the opportunity. And that thing about, like, being able to speak their language. Yeah. It's okay if small words. It's okay if small words, like, salam alaikum, fall from your tongue like broken bones. It's okay if you understand but can't reply. It's okay if you understand but can't reply. Even, like, I have brothers. You know, we live in the same house and everything, but it's still so different. And, like, at school, we're doing this, like, end of the year, like, how do you say it? Like, spectacle. There's the one that organizes everything. He was giving me poems, Mexican poems, and all of these things. And he's like, oh, do you know this artist? Do you know this person? And I'm like, wait, no, I don't. And he was like, everyone knows them. You're Mexican, shouldn't you know? And I was like, oh my god. It's not, I feel so bad. Like, yeah. And it's normal, actually. You can't just expect someone, like a kid that's thrown into this new setting as much in touch with all of the previous cultures that it's a part of. It's not fair. It isn't. Yeah. Thank you, Mia. Aaron Saul, do you want to ask another one of your questions? Yes. Cicely, as you've mentioned throughout this podcast interview, you are an activist for a lot of different issues. I really do think that you are a true leader in your community. And I really think that it's a really powerful dynamic to be both an activist and an artist. So I was just wondering, in what ways has being an activist informed your work as an artist? And the other way around, how has being an artist informed your work as an activist? Yeah, I think being an activist is something that is to me more like what comes naturally I suppose you know I think from a young age being someone who was always driven to like stand up for myself and stand up for others and stand up for those who maybe were silenced or underrepresented and I think art then became like a method or or a vessel to share that in different ways and it wasn't like I always wanted to write a book and to publish a book and I, I didn't know or consider that it would be poetry at first I mean I've always been into art in different ways. My mom is an artist, but I didn't really see myself as having the skills or drive to produce art in that way. But then I think, yeah, activism and art like go so well hand in hand that it became much easier to create things, to to write creatively, to write poetry. Because I felt, especially as I grew older, I felt a lot more assured in my worldview and in my political beliefs and in my ability to make a difference and make a change. Whereas I think when I was yeah when I was younger when I was still in high school I was confident but I was I didn't have the language or I didn't have the emotional maturity I guess to properly communicate about things that I thought were unjust whereas once I came to learn the correct language or or the most effective methods to make a difference that all sort of fell into place and then I was able to use talents that I hadn't touched in a while like writing poetry to express yeah some of the same things that I was expressing expressing in other ways. So in my grassroots activism, going to protests and and in my work as a consultant now, writing this book kind of became another vessel to share lots of the same ideas. And that was kind of quite liberating for me because I'm so accustomed to public speaking and writing more formally that everything I write or say has to be very carefully curated and, and has more of a formality to it. Whereas when you write poetry, you can kind of do what you want. And, you know, my mentors 
and, and my editors really encouraged me to be creative and to think outside the box and to not worry about traditions or norms when it comes to poetry. Yeah, I guess all of that is to say that those two things go hand in hand really well. And I guess the fact that there's always so much more to say and there's always so much more that needs to be changed is something that inspires me to continue writing. Speaking of mentors, Vivek Shreya was a mentor of yours, right? Your book, Earning Sugar, was published through her imprint, which is a part of Arsenal Pulp Press. Yeah, definitely. It was amazing to have a mentor because I think what a lot of young writers, especially writers of colour or people who've, you know, traditionally been excluded from industries like publishing struggle with is the lack of resources or lack of connections for folks maybe whose family is connected to the publishing industry or things like that find it a lot easier to get into those spaces. So it was really important to have somebody who was kind of in my corner and was supporting me throughout the whole process, both with the career creative side of the work, but then also with the more logistical side of actually publishing a book. And even since then, you know, supporting me with speaking at festivals and panel events and things like that. She's been so amazing. So yeah, it's really, it's so great to have a mentor. And because I think writing can be something that can be a bit isolating, you know, it's something that ultimately you have to do on your own. So it's great to have someone who's guiding you through that and, and has your best interest at heart. For sure. I mean, that's a great big help in any situation but yeah. certainly in, in confusing and artistic ones. I believe both of you are theater kids and not writers. Is that correct? Yes. Mainly, yeah. Proud theater kid. Proud theater kid. <laughs> Still great. Erin, so I think you had more questions you wanted to ask, right? Yeah, for sure. When writing your poems, especially after COVID or in this phase where we are trying to escape COVID, <laughs> how important is the theme of connection between your art and your audience to you? Mm. Yeah, I think that's something that I'm still navigating because when I wrote Burning Sugar, although I was empowered by, you know, lots of people around me and my mentor and community to, you know, write my own truth and, and write freely. Yeah, I, I guess, yeah, still in the back of my mind, there was part of me that was writing for a more like white mainstream audience. And that kind of impacted like how I wanted to say something or like if I maybe wrote something in a particular way. And I think moving forward now that I've kind of got my first book out there and it's been successful and received good feedback, I feel a bit freer to not that I wasn't authentic, but just to be more creative or more expressive in talking about certain parts of my life or, or perspectives that I didn't cover the the first time. And so when it comes to my audience, I think, yeah, when I write in future, and I think also a lot has, so much has changed as well with COVID and also with the attention that came to Black Lives Matter in 2020. And so by that time, I had already pretty much finished my book and it was already going to publication. So when I was writing, I was writing kind of thinking Black Lives Matter was still a little bit too radical for the mainstream and a little bit kind of a taboo topic to speak about because it was so misunderstood stood as a movement. But then when we came, you know, into summer of 2020, and there were so many protests across North America, across the world, and people really started to respond and pay attention to BLM and, and like actually understand what it was. But I had, yeah, I, I had already written my first book at that point. But now post that time, we are just sort of living in a very different landscape, I suppose, and, and the conversations around police brutality and, and anti-blackness and racism and racism of all kinds, you know, there's been more conversations about anti-Asian racism, and white supremacy and all of these things which previously we couldn't talk about more broadly or, or more publicly or you know if you tried to write about those things you would run the risk of being rejected by publishers but now it's almost the opposite it's like that's what publishers are craving you know 
that they, they know that those topics will sell books. So yeah, as I start to work on new projects, I'm working with a very different audience in, in mind, because I think even if it's the exact same people who, who buy future books, who bought the first book, even them as individuals probably have changed quite significantly over the past two years through the pandemic and through all of these things. So yeah, it's it's very interesting time to, to publish a book in the pandemic and then to start working on other projects and potentially talking to an entirely different world almost. Yeah, wow. Actually, I have a question. I'd love to know about the white space, how you performed at Aaron Saul. But maybe first you could talk about how you usually perform it, Cicely. Um, yeah, with a lot of my poems, when I'm reading them, I do tend to give a pause either before the very end, or maybe if I'm trying to emphasize sort of what I consider them to be the most pivotal moment of the piece. For example, there's another poem um, called North Carolina. And in that poem, I write about when I visited a, a former slave plantation in North Carolina, and they still have the whipping post there that they that they use back in, I guess, 1600s, 1700s. And even though that's in the middle, of the poem, the way that I'm describing it is actually what became the title of the book, Burning Sugar. So I tend to yeah use moments to like pause and emphasize things like that. But I think also because there is a difference between like written poetry or poetry that's like intentionally created for spoken word. And so I think the beauty of that also is that with someone else reading it, like yourself, Aaron Sol, you can have your own interpretations as well as to like where to emphasize or like what you think is the most pivotal moment of the piece. Yeah, to be honest, I mean, I think that like this white space, obviously it's like left for interpretation, but I think think when I was analyzing this poem and even preparing for the national semifinals, my teachers and I talked about it. I'm Mr. Perry, just all my other English teachers and frankly, the whole English department helped me. So I think for this poem and for my recitation of it, I imagine myself like looking at myself in the mirror and this whole poem, I'm just reciting these affirmations to myself and there's the large space at the end of the poem. And I think for me, it was just this pause of reflection reflection and just realization the realization of everything that I've just said and all the affirmations that I've just said and now just like taking that I think now ask myself like what do I do with this so I think that white space is just like me processing all that I just said because I feel like the way that I'm saying it with the last two lines like it's okay if you spend your whole life shunning it's okay it all. if you spend your whole life shunning it all I think this is the first time that I've said these things out loud like I've I've been thinking about this for such a long time but this is the first time that I'm saying it out loud even if it's just like to myself like in the mirror like in the bathroom and because of that, there's like this big weight taken off of my shoulders. Now that that weight is off my shoulders, I'm given this new perspective that though I can't take back the things that I lost touch with, like my culture, and no matter how much I regret it, it does not make me any less worthy of deserving to know my roots or where I came from. So I, that's why I also added the little arm out because I think that at the end, there's the little the letter sign off, love always, CB. I'm just extending my hand out to the audience because I think that the mirror just expands and I'm now talking to the audience and any diaspora children out there who might be in the audience. So I just felt that that was a really good way to just connect with the audience and just make the message hit home a little more. And now just like taking that and it's kind of just this like, okay, you've just said it out loud. Like, how do you feel about this? With my like, with my emotions, just like now ask myself, like, what do I do with this? How am I going to react to this? I can just like let it take over me and just like let this haunt me for the rest of my life where I can have this more positive outlook and just say that there's like, there's no shame in feeling all these things. And I like, I'm good that I'm aware of these things, but now I should do something about it. <laughs> That's beautiful, Aaron. So 
well. Yeah, it's a beginning. I love that the poem says such positive things to you as a reader. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it can be difficult to write like more positive or affirming poems as well, because I think a lot of poets and artists in general kind of default to talking about struggle and, and challenges. And I think that one of the beautiful things about art is that it's a way for it's, it's a way for people to talk about their struggles and to talk about, you know, oppression and and I think also in a way that is evocative and meaningful to the audience. And so it can be difficult to write something that which has a more positive leaning side to it, I guess. But I think because what I wanted to do with the book was educate people and also inspire people, that's what kind of helped me to write something that like, yeah, it still it still talks about difficult experiences, but it, I guess it has a lens that's a bit more hopeful and, and reassuring to those who resonate. You know, it's, it's often easier to take somebody else's advice than it is to take your own. So I think if I had tried to say those things to myself without writing them down, I probably would have not taken them seriously I, or I would have been too too hard on myself. And even though in the poem I'm saying, you know, it's okay, it's okay, I don't know if I would have necessarily afforded myself that grace. Whereas when I'm saying it to someone else or I'm saying it to this hypothetical diaspora child or I'm, I'm saying it to all these people who I hope will resonate or, or friends in school, especially again, going to international school, many people were from all over. You know, it's sometimes difficult to take your own advice but by by writing this poem to others or to the audience or you know a hypothetical person when I read it back and when people started to tell me that they liked that poem I guess I was then able to really internalize it and take yeah take my own advice I guess and like take those affirmations on for myself and I think that's allowed me to become much more confident in who I am and yeah it's it's very nerve-wracking to kind of like put yourself out there in that way and to you know write about personal experiences and I think to know that the book has been successful and to know that people have resonated with my work allows me to feel more confident I mean I don't really know what I would have done if everybody hated it (laughs) but luckily they didn't (laughs) so yeah it helps me to feel more self-assured and as I was saying before like that allows me to be more free in my next works and write in a more in a deeper way I suppose yeah that's wonderful it's a wonderful book and being on CBC's best Canadian poetry of 2020 list doesn't come with any money so you certainly deserve all of the clout and self-confidence that your success can bring you. And I am so glad that we have had this conversation here today. We are now at the end of the podcast, but thank you, Aaron Saul. Thank you, Mia. Thank you, Cicely. I have really enjoyed hearing all of your opinions and talking about Dear Diaspora Child with the three of you. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is great. Yes. Yeah, thank you. Yes, thank you. And thanks again to our podcast listeners for joining us. You are the reason why this is happening. And I hope you're enjoying it. Have a great day and we'll talk to you next episode. Goodbye. Voices. 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 Voices.